You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast, as well as an episode of Tajin, our new podcast on North Africa. My name is Nir Shafir, and today I have with us Claire Gilbert. Claire is a doctoral candidate at UCLA, uh, focusing on early modern Spanish history. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Nir. So today Claire is going to be talking about the role of translators in diplomatic contact between Spain and Morocco at the end of the 16th century. And scholars have increasingly focused on the role of the Mediterranean as a space of, let's say, cultural contact and of exchange, not only of, you know, goods uh, and economic things, but also ideas and people migrating and uh, moving around this space. And I think Claire here is, uh, and here tonight, today we're going to talk about this, you know, late 16th century moment, this moment of contact between uh, Spanish kingdom, Portugal, uh, and all these various other kingdoms in, in Morocco. We're going to look at the role of translators as this kind of point of contact. You know, what comes in, what comes out, how do the, how do ideas and things get exchanged? So, Claire, let's set the scene here. You know, what is going on? I mean, what if we're looking at the late 16th century? First of all, what who's around? Let's say in the early modern period in the, let's say, Western Mediterranean. Great. And I think that's a, a really great place to start, sort of imagining the Western Mediterranean as a space that is, um, that could be itself a a space of historical analysis as not just um, contact between Spain and Morocco, although there certainly is, and that's something we're going to talk a lot about, but as a space of circulation where agents are moving around, where they know each other, um, where they know a lot of the common forms and practices with which to communicate to one another. Okay, but I mean, who's who's around? You know, what? Who are the players here? You know, we all, I think people know. You know, the the Reconquista and you know the these new Spanish this new Spanish kingdom. But what else is there? Who's who's in charge? Um, so let me so let me tell you a little bit about why the end of the 16th century is so interesting in this Western Mediterranean context. Um, so there are a lot of players who are around. Uh, there is the Habsburg monarchy, who controls at this time Castile, Aragon, um, not yet Portugal, although at the moment that we um, are going to sort of really begin our focus, this is also the moment of the Iberian Union, and I'll, and I'll come back to that. Um, there's also the Saidi dynasty in Morocco, who's a relatively new dynasty that had come to power not too long after, in fact, the rise of the Habsburgs in Spain. Uh, I mean, this is a complicated dynastic history, of course, um, but the, it's just important to know that the Habsburgs come to power in Spain at about the same time that the Saidis come to power in Morocco. And when is that? Uh, so the Habsburgs come to Spain in about 1516, and then the Saidis are, are making their way, they're consolidating their power base throughout the first half of the 16th century. And the 1550s, which is when Philip II comes to power, um, is also um, sort of the, the moment when the Saidis really consolidate themselves as the 
rulers of what we now consider Morocco. Um, so the Spanish, however, and the and the Moroccan societies are not the only players on the scene. There are also um, Ottoman influences extended all the way through the regencies of Algiers, of course, um, as you and your listeners know very well. And this uh, this presence of sphere of influence and the presence of Ottoman agents has really um, started to cause a lot of anxiety both for the Habsburgs and for the Saidis. So the Saidis are not uh, anxious to not be pulled into the Ottoman sphere of influence at the same time that they're anxious to keep up good relations, both with the Ottomans and with the Habsburgs. And then, so and also throughout this period, beginning in the early 15th century in the case of Portugal and at the end of the 15th century in the case of Spain, garrison outposts begin to be established. Iberian garrison outposts are established uh, along North Africa, both the Mediterranean uh, North African coast and the Atlantic coast in the case of the Portuguese. So these are generally referred to as presidios. So your research focuses on this, you know, a late 16th century moment. You know, why, what's special about this moment? Why, why did you decide to focus on, you know, why did you decide to focus on this period? So the end of the 16th century, there are a couple sort of key dates, and I'm afraid that we're going to have to go to, to old school political history for just a moment to sort of understand why the dynamics between the powers and the, and the different communities that I've just talked about change at the end of the 16th century. So at the end of the 16th century, as I've said, the Habsburgs are in power in Spain, and Spain is, roughly speaking, Castile and the Crown of Aragon. Uh, the Portuguese are their own kingdom with their own dynasty, uh, they they're related by they're related by marriage, but they're not. It's not part of the same dynasty. Uh, meanwhile, as I've said, there's a new dynasty in Morocco, the Saidians, who have their own uh, dynastic issues. So you know, one brother had come to power. His other brothers had been exiled or killed. Um, the ones who had been exiled had actually gone to be educated in the Ottoman Empire. So that's another um, connection to the Ottoman. Uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman sphere of influence in the Western Mediterranean. Um, And in the 1570s, two things happen regarding the Moroccan dynasty and the Portuguese dynasty. So in Portugal, there's a very young king named King Sebastian uh, who has been educated, really inculcated with the ideas of reconquest and the crusading ideal. And he decides that that he's going to carry the reconquest, which is this sort of imagined uh, ideology of justified religious war um, that the that the Christians in Spain had used to justify conquest of Muslim territories throughout the medieval period. The reconquest, uh, for whatever that term may be worth, the reconquest is over by the end of the 16th century. But Sebastian decides he's going to take that same ideology and carry it to Morocco. Um, at the same time, the exiled Saidi princes, who I just mentioned, who had been in Ottoman territories, they were living in Algiers at the time, uh, gain enough support in order to come back and usurp the other branch of the family, who is currently really Morocco. There's a lot of dynastic competition a- at play at this moment, so Sebastian decides to invade Morocco. He has the support of the usurped Moroccan ruler. Uh, And then, of course, there is the Saidi prince who had come from Algiers and taken over. This is um, Abdel Malik, who's a relatively uh, well-known figure in this story. Um, So what happens is that in August of 1578, there's a huge battle called the Battle of the Three Kings in English language historiography, in which three kings die. And those three kings are the new king of Morocco, the new sultan, uh, the new Saidi sultan, the old... That is Abdel Malik? That's Abdel Malik. Uh, the old usurped Saidi Sultan, who is Al Mutawakkil, 
and King Sebastian himself. So all three die, um, and there's a big dynastic changeover in both Morocco and then in Portugal because Sebastian had no heirs. So this takes a little while to sort out, but Abdel Malik's brother, Ahmed al-Mansur, takes power. He becomes a very long-lived monarch, uh, and Philip II, the Habsburg king of Spain, becomes the king of Portugal. He becomes Philip I of Portugal. So now we've entered into a new dynastic moment for both areas for both territories uh, and both Philip and Ahmed al-Mansur have a different um, a different idea of how they want to approach one another as sort of facing powers with similar if not equal concerns about the Ottoman uh, about the Ottoman presence um, and then their own relationship to one another as you know potential trading partners of course there's always the underlying tension of uh, religious conflict and competition out of curiosity, so this King Sebastian, the one that dies, he's the one uh, in Portugal that kind of sets off a, I mean, there's all this millenarian expect, uh, expectation about his return. Yes. That he's going to come back and lead some sort of, you know, holy kingdom of uh, Christians. Yes, right? exactly. So this this is something, um, so Sebastian becomes a sort of millenarian figure because, you know, I've, I've made it sound as if the Iberian Union were were a really easy process, but in fact, there's a lot of contention. The Portuguese try and find any relative they can of Sebastian's. Um, and then there's a lot of um, contest to the legitimacy of the Habsburg claim, which ends up culminating in a revolt in the 17th century, which is when the Iberian Union breaks, breaks up. And then this idea that Sebastian will return, or he never, you know, he was never really killed, maybe, or his body, you know, was never... So the, so it's also a slightly millenarian climate in this period. Well, it will become it will be so. Okay. It will become so. But that's, I think, especially true in slightly later periods. Okay. So you have these new monarchs, uh, both worried about the Ottomans, trying to establish their own rule. I mean, what's at stake? Why? why what's the role of translators here? What is the contact between them now? So there's one very important uh, reason they have to have contact, or perhaps I should say there's one very important reason why Philip is interested in having contact with uh, Ahmed al-Mansur. And first and foremost, that's the, the huge number of Spanish and Portuguese captives who are in Morocco after this battle. So they, the Spanish want to find a way to get those captives back, as many as possible. Uh, and I think Ahmed al-Mansur is not... No, not has no objections to returning the captives. Either he doesn't necessarily want to feed and clothe this number of prisoners, um, and it's a good sort of entry into possible negotiations, a possible alliance against any Ottoman encroachment. Um, and this is also, um, I mean, it's worth noting that we're talking about 1578, 1579, 1580, which is a decade after the Battle of Lepanto. So that's a moment in Ottoman Habsburg relations. Um, so just to remind our listeners, I mean, in the Battle of Lepanto. You have basically this huge naval battle uh, between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs and their allies, in which you know the Ottomans suffer a severe defeat uh, off the coast of Lepanto, and you know, and this really is one of the kind of shifts in the uh, balance of power in the Mediterranean. So, what you're saying is that basically, I mean, let me pose this question: Is you know, how much are the Saidi dynasty and the Habsburgs fighting each other? How much are they trying to, or or is it that they're actually both worried about Ottoman expansion? I mean, is it, or is it kind of a three-player game? They are both worried about Ottoman expansion, um, but at this moment, they're also both worried, worried, or at least interested in some sort of overtures of, if not 
alliance. Certainly, the Saidis don't want to get into any sort of um, hierarchized relationship with the Ottomans. They want to maintain their own sovereignty. And then, you know, the Habsburgs don't want to be in an actual alliance with the Ottomans. But there is, the door is now open for both to, say, send ambassadors or have some kind of um, diplomatic agents going back and forth from the, uh, both Morocco and Spain and the Ottoman Empire. But it's not like an alliance between the Saidis and the Habsburgs. It's not an alliance. However, there are a lot of the characteristics of an alliance. So a lot, this is when a lot of letters begin to be exchanged uh, in which the topic is what kind of friendship are we going to have? And in particular, how is this friendship going to be demonstrated in terms of captive return? Uh, and also, the Spanish are very interested in taking, having some sort of presence on the Moroccan Atlantic coast. Mm -hmm. So this is important for them because at this point, you know, the Habsburgs are also beginning to manage this very large Atlantic ocean trade and a lot of the, you know, the ships are going out, right, they're going out of the Mediterranean right where the Atlantic, Moroccan Atlantic coast is. There begins to be a huge problem with piracy both in the in the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean and for the Spaniards, if they could get an Atlantic outpost on the Moroccan that sort of northwest Moroccan coast, that would be wonderful for them. So they begin to negotiate with Ahmed al-Mansur to see if they can't establish something. Uh, in particular, they're looking at a site called Larache or Al-Arash. Now that we've kind of explained the the political the geopolitical situation in the western mediterranean the end of 16th century i mean what's i mean how do how what is this process of communication where do the translators fit in okay so this is a really good question it sort of gets to the heart of um sort of gets to the heart of this question of how does one study cultural contact um, so that we understand that the Ottomans, that the Saidis, that the that the Spanish are all in some kind of contact, diplomatic, military, cultural. There's some sort of exchange or conflict or contact in general going on. How does that actually happen? So in the case of the Saidis and the Habsburgs, it happens through the exchange of letters, and the exchange of letters can happen at a lot of different levels. Um, so it can happen between um, between the two monarchs themselves, or it can happen. Uh, between uh, different noblemen or different counselors, uh, or it can even happen, uh, there's sort of a, a, a chain of information uh, that goes along the Mediterranean between, uh, between the Presidias we spoke about earlier, Morocco and Spain, uh, in which information is sort of gathered and then funneled into reports and then sent to either, to either of the monarchs. Um, so the translators um, become very important sort of keys in order to both make and then unlock that correspondence because a lot of it is either in Arabic or in Castilian or in some sort of um, Castilian-Italian mix because there are a lot of Italian agents who are in play too. So this is, I mean, this is the act of, let's say, written translation rather than face-to-face -face interpretation. Okay, so th and then this is also another very complicated, um, uh, this becomes also a complicated uh, way of understanding the letter because the, because the letters, you're right, are written. And the translations that we have are also written translations. However, some of that translation of those letters could take place orally. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I think in the Moroccan case, uh, probably a lot of it did. So in, in that case, there's a translator who's able to read the letters, and he may or may not then generate an, an you know, legitimate 
Arabic translation from the Spanish letter, but he is rendering that Spanish letter into Arabic for the sultan or for his counselors. Okay, so, I mean, who are these people? Who are they? I mean, who has both Spanish and Arabic skills at this period? And possibly, I mean, maybe Ottoman Turkish skills as well. Right. So there's a, there are a lot of languages that are in play, and there are a lot of agents that have um, that have different language skills based on their own experience, either working for these different powers. A lot of a lot of a lot of the agents actually end up working for more than one power as they travel and circulate around the Mediterranean. Um, in general, in the Spanish case, uh, the the um, you know, people from Spain who know both Spanish and Arabic are generally called from the, um, or drawn, excuse me, drawn from the uh, Morisco population, and especially in Granada. So, you know, it's important to just sort of remind ourselves that Granada had been relatively recently conquered at the end of the 15th century, and there was still a relatively large Arabic-speaking population um, in the southern part of Spain, and there was also a um, a pretty developed Arabic administration. Uh, so the the administrative apparatus in Granada was able to handle Arabic texts, Arabic testimony, uh, and to do this they had a core of Arabic translators. And that's, and that's you know, something that I, I deal with in sort of the broader scope of my dissertation. Um, but what's very interesting is that in the 1570s, uh, there's a big rebellion in Spain, um, the Moriscos rebel, the Granada, the Granada Moriscos rebel against Philip II, who I've already mentioned, um, and the and they're repopulated throughout Spain. So those Arabic institutions that I've just talked about um, lose a lot of their sort of immediate um, function, but there's still these Arabic translators now. Not very long after this big war and rebellion, which happens right at the turn of the 1570s, 1568 to 1571, um, not long after that time, Philip begins this new Mediterranean policy. With it'll, It will be with Ahmed al-Mansur after 1578, but he's already you know, sort of starting to pay more attention to the Moroccans. So he has Arabic translators that he can rely on to start... Um, to start doing this translation with with the Moroccan um, sultan. And so, I mean, is there a level of distrust here? I mean, because these people are from Moriscos, because they're, uh, you know, recently rebelled, you know, and given all the uh, emphasis in Spain at the time on, you know, blood purity and these sorts of... Am I wrong? No, no, okay. no, okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. Blood purity. I mean, what... I mean, how... I mean, how do these translators function and at the same time they're a distrusted population? Right. So this is a, the translators in Spain are in a very ambivalent position. And it's something they speak about in the, the sort of few autobiographical texts that we have. It's something that definitely comes up. Um, so I'll just give you one example who's a, who's a, who's a pretty well-known example in this field, um, but listeners may or may not know about him, who is Alonso del Castillo. So Alonso Say that again. Alonso del Castillo. Okay. Uh, Alonso del Castillo was a Morisco physician from Granada, and he had um, been employed by a number of different um, institutions in Granada before the Morisco revolt and the Morisco repopulation. Uh, so he had translated for the Chancery. Um, he had made translations of some of the you know Arabic inscriptions in in um, architectural inscriptions that were still left over from the na- previous Nazareth period. Um, and he played an important role, actually, in the military um, suppression of of that of that uh, revolt that I've just mentioned. So he was translating Arabic correspondence from the Morisco rebels, and also circulating his own disinformation by writing fake 
Arabic letters and and sort of scattering them around the population in order to um, you know make the Moriscos think that they weren't doing as well. Um, so he's very much involved um, with the crown. Uh, and with the um, sort of normative institutions that are trying to control the Moriscos. Um, so he already has this, this um, relationship with Philip's agents, at the very least. Uh, this is Philip II. We're still talking about Philip II, the Habsburg king of Spain at this time. So then, in, at the end of the 1570s, when Philip is looking for an Arabic translator, and it's worth noting that he's looking for an Arabic translator not just for diplomatic correspondence with Ahmed al-Mansur, but also because he's begun to collect Arabic manuscripts for his own royal library. So he's looking sort of, he's looking for somebody who can translate both, um, both diplomatic correspondence, you know, current diplomatic correspondence and also uh, historical texts or, you know, texts that older texts. So Alonso del Castillo is sort of perfectly qualified for this because he had translated court letters during the Morisco Revolt, 1568, and he also had experience translating these more historical inscriptions. So he's called by the king um, to become the royal translator. This is a process that takes a little while, precisely for this issue that you just mentioned, which is mistrust or the ambivalent position of an Arabic speaker in the Spanish monarchy. So it takes him several years to earn um, to earn the official title. He doesn't actually gain the official title of royal translator until 1583. So that gives you some idea of how long he is working to demonstrate that he is really a, a trustworthy translator. Um, and he addresses this a lot in his text. He, he spends a lot of time in his translations uh, describing how the translation came to him, what officials authorized it. And in my view, this is really a way for him to legitimize his own position as somebody who knows Arabic and knows Spanish. And he speaks a lot about his privilege, his sort of privileged knowledge of, this, of the secrets, whatever secrets are in this sort of state uh, correspondence between Ahmed al-Mansur and, and Philip at this time. I have two questions, basically. One is this. I mean, it seems from you know this description of this role of translator or royal translator that there's quite a lot of leeway you know, they have a lot of room to exercise their own discretion and their own power. Uh, you know, how do they use that? I mean, how do they, you know, he said he's casting himself as this possessor of secrets. Mm -hmm. You know, is he a faithful servant or is he in, in the end become his own sort of power broker? Well, that's a good question, especially in the case of Alonso del Castillo, who is, I think, a relatively faithful servant. However, he ends up not being the main royal translator. So he's he's working through the fifteen, you know, through the fifteen eighties, but then he ends up returning to Granada and he becomes involved in his own sort of projects. Uh, a really very interesting story that we probably don't want to get into here, which are the Libros Plomos, which are these discovered. Um, uh, Arabic, Latin, Spanish relics, which are forgeries, are discovered also in the 1580s in Granada, and um, and are being used by the Morisco population and the Christian population, the sort of old Christian Catholic um, hierarchy, in order to justify the ancient. Uh, reputation of Granada City. And I will just point listeners who are interested in this to the work of Mercedes Garcia Renal and Fernando Rodriguez Mediano, who have just come out with a wonderful book called The Orient in Spain, which really um, deals with this issue at some length, and also the work of Katie Harris. Mm -hmm. I mean, just by just wondering, you know, how many trans how many translators do the court have? Just to give us a sense in early modern Spain, you know, who are the translators outside the court? 
how does you know what's their interrelation okay so this this is also a very good question and this question sort of it's an in, sort of an institutional question it's important to understand um so when we're talking about the court we're talking about one institution which is the monarchy and it has that has its own uh set of administrative hierarchies and in it, the short answer to your question is how many royal translators are there there's one so it's I, it's Castillo, and then after Castillo, it's a man named Diego de Urrea, and before Castillo, it's a man named Alonso Venegas. But Alonso Venegas has a has a um, role that is totally different from Castillo's because he's really just involved in the local Granadan administration. So that this is a moment where we sort of see overlapping institutions: um, the municipal institution, the uh, dynastic institution of the monarchy with its own bureaucracy, the administration of the church with its own bureaucracy. And in each of these institutions, um, there are some overlaps where sometimes it's the same Arabic translator who's working, but they're usually not that many at the royal court itself. And in fact, this becomes sort of a problem for Philip, who, as I said, wants somebody to be working with the Arabic texts in his library. He, he'd like to get some more Arabic speakers to come in and be able to, um, to work on that. And this so it's just it's just basically one at a time. It's not a bureau. It's not like each individual nobleman has their personal translator. Well, this is also an interesting question. I'm glad that you brought it up. There is, and something I argue in my dissertation, there is a Bureau of Translation in Granada. But this is a very sort of special local uh, situation. In the court, there's not a Bureau in the sense of, uh, you know, Castillo is not heading up a whole um, team of underlings. And neither is Urea, although he is tasked with it, uh, to to train other Arabic speakers who might be able to help him in his work. Um, so I think there there is re- some hope that maybe there will be a larger core of Arabic translators that have come to their knowledge through that sort of official training. Um, however, the, the noblemen do have their own translators. And I mean, this is another sort of, you know, I hesitate to, to use the word institutional, but it's another level of uh, administration and bureaucracy, which is that which takes place through the nobles, uh, through the noblemen. And in particular, uh, the, the noble who's most important for our story is the Duke of Medina Sidonia. Uh, who, uh, Where is that? So um, that is a region in Andalusia, a little bit south uh, west of Seville. Um, and the Duke of Medina Sidonia is... Um, in charge, uh, he oversees a lot of the interaction between Spain and North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. There's also a noble in Valencia who kind of facilitates the the circulation of of information between the more central North Africa and and Iberia. But these noblemen are very important um, sort of nodes in the circulation of these letters that we've been talking about and these reports that we've been talking about. So these noblemen um, and the noblemen who usually somewhat lesser noblemen who are stationed in the presidios also have their own translators. So who's a royal translator, who's a noble translator, who's a municipal translator? These are all really valuable questions to ask, and sometimes the answer is it's the same person, sometimes not. So if we, let's say, let's trace a letter. Okay, a Spanish, the Spanish uh, monarch or a nobleman is writing, you know, he wants to say something. You know, can you give us the process? How does that letter get from there to the neck to its recipient, let's say the Moroccan monarch? Right. So actually, let's let's take it in the other direction. So I think uh, I'll just have a better answer. So how how does a letter from Ahmed al Mansur get to Philip? Um, and then we can we'll look at the the opposite trajectory also. And I'm going to take us back again to the time, the relatively short time period in which Alonso del Castillo is working. So that's the end of the 1570s and the 1580s uh, when he's working on this diplomatic correspondence because he has a much longer career. Um, so a letter from Ahmed al Mansur will come to Spain. It probably is delivered 
via the Duke of Medina Sidonia, whose you know own holdings are you know between where the court is and where um, where the letter is across the Mediterranean. Uh, at that point, it okay. Ahmed Al Mansur. He writes the letter. Is he writing in Spanish or in Arabic? He write, So he's going to write his letter in Arabic, and he, um, you know, the letters the letters are in first person. Um, however, I think it's most likely that the person who wrote it is his, you know, chief scribe. In this case, probably um, after 1585, which is after Alonso uh, Castillo's period, is probably um, Alfaschtali, who's a relatively well known um, figure in this in this um, historiography, because he's he was both the head scribe and the chief historiographer. So he left us the best record of what uh, went on in Almansur's court from sort of the the level of, of administrative and bureaucratic practice. Um, so even if it wasn't Alfaschtali, because he didn't what's his name? His name is Abdelaziz Alfaschtali. Uh, and he was appointed in 1585, I think, to the position of um, chief scribe, um, the Wazir al-Qalam. So, okay, the letter gets written in Arabic. Uh, it gets to uh, the Duke. Then what does he do with it? Um, so uh, so the letter the letter is sent out then from the Moroccan Chancery. Uh, it may come through the Duke of Medina Sidonia, who may read it and have it translated there. Um, but more likely in this period is that he would send it on to the court, at which point one of the royal secretaries, who's a relatively highly placed official, would then send it to Alonso del Castillo in Granada. Uh, and this happens through a number of institutional channels. Um, in Granada, there is a royal... The royal court, that is the main sort of arm of the of the crown in Granada, and the president of the court is the person who most often, you know, tapped Castillo and said, "You need to. We'd like you to do this translation. Here's the text." And he and he writes about this in his. He keeps a journal. Um, again, to go back to this question of, you know, are Moriscos trustworthy? Well, Castillo is very aware that that question is in play, so he keeps this work workbook in order to justify. Uh, his possession of Arabic texts and his and his work with those Arabic texts. Um, so he translates it, and then he returns the letter and the translation, probably to the president of the royal court, who then sends it back up through the chain of hierarchy until it gets to Philip. And then what's interesting is that he's not initially allowed to keep any of the Arabic texts, which is why in his journal he also makes copies, which are really useful for us. So he, he transcribes both the Arabic and his own translation. Have you ever been able to compare uh, the original Arabic letter to the, say, the Spanish translation and see any discrepancies or, I mean, how similar they are? Yeah, so generally uh, Castillo is generally relatively um, faithful to the uh, to the. Um, original text. Uh, however, and this is something I'd, I'd like to talk about just sort of in general as we go forward, when we go back to the the uh, Moroccan case, there is a, a sense of doing literal translation, whether or not that's the best choice. So in the case of diplomatic translation, literal translation is probably the best choice, or at least it's the best choice to say, if you're the translator, that you did literal translation. And Alonso del Castillo uses this phrase, uh, de verbo ad verbum, so this means word by word, it's the same. It's not necessarily word by word the same, but it's very the sense is very close. Um, that said, there's some other examples, um, and if we maybe sort of ask ourselves about, um, there's an alternative to the route that I just described for how a letter gets from Almansur to Philip, um, which involves the the letter actually being translated into Spanish in Morocco. Uh, and in that case, there's a very interesting translator named uh, Abdurrahman al-Katani uh, who makes the translations 
also uses the language of de huerpo ad huerpum. Uh, however, he's not translating word for word. He is very careful. Uh, he translates between the, in the correspondence between Almansur and Philip, and also Almansur and Elizabeth, Elizabeth the First of England. Um, and when he when Al Katani makes the translations, he sort of very cleverly changes some some small items, but very important items. So he um, instead of rendering the sovereign legitimacy of the monarchs in terms of their sort of dynastic patrimony, which is how it's usually done in Arabic. He instead uh, invokes the territories. The king of Morocco is generally referred to by his, uh, his familial titles, uh, but then when it's translated into Spanish, he becomes the king of the place of Morocco. Or sus, or um, so he, this sort of territorial language, which was more common in the European diplomatic correspondence. So Al Qatani is a really interesting figure because he has that sort of dual chancery knowledge. So he's able to understand the protocol in the Arabic and then understand how that protocol would be best expressed in Spanish. I think this is an interesting point because in some of our previous podcasts, especially on uh, in Shah and these chancellery productions, you know. If you look at these letters, it's almost entirely the titles and the praise to the kings and so forth. And the actual content of it is, you know, two sentences at the end. And so, so much of the role of, you know, the fun, you know, so much of what these letters entail is this, you know, all these titles. And so when they're, I think it's an interesting point you bring up kind of how he's slowly shifting this, making this more understandable or equivalent to European equivalents. And why do you think he did that? Or what do you, what was the impact of that well, change? I think what's really interesting about this um, is that he is not only translating the language, he's really translating the format. So he's translating the code, the expected diplomatic code. Uh, and it, I mean, in many senses, both Philip and, uh, and Al-Mansur and Elizabeth, they were all really lucky that Al-Qatani was working because he made, he sort of facilitated that um, that exchange, which might not have been quite as intelligible if he hadn't been able to make that those smaller changes. And I think you're really right because these letters, you know, maybe they're a folio, maybe they're a little bit longer, and the, the meat of the letter is usually either I give permission to so-and-so to do something or I received so, such and such from you or I'm still thinking of the thing we talked about last time. But, but all of that text, which takes up, you know, the folio, is who's it from, where did? Where are they, who's it going to, and where are they, and what court, and who do they rule over. Um, so those, those titles and that assertion of, you know, family, the family, the place, the sovereignty are really, that's what's really at stake. Mm-hmm. You know, how, what's the sort of sovereign representation that's going back and forth? And in many ways, Al-Qatani makes it more powerful um, in the in mm-hmm. the European in according to the European models. Do you think there's a I mean like okay, if we try to abstract this perchance like we look at notions of sovereignty based off of like territorial claims versus notions of sovereignty based off of like uh familial lineages. I mean can we you know, do can you speculate as to what the difference between those are? Well I and actually you know I've also sort of used Shaw in order to to think about what's going on in the Moroccan case. It seems that the the in the Moroccan case, it's very important to invoke the actual, the exact lineage. Um, whereas in the European case, it's more important to invoke the the mom- the territories that are ruled over at that moment. So that is the sort of difference between the two styles of representation. Um, you know, in the Moroccan case, the the Saidis. Uh, 
they, they, you know, they're the Sharifian dynasty. So they, they, I mean, like a lot of dynasties in Morocco. Um, so that that lineage becomes so that important. means that they the descended they're from descended the from the prophet. Mm-hmm. So that so that um, you can see why the family reference and all of the sort of nisbas that go back to the family um, would be so important for the Moroccans to have within Moroccan correspondence or probably with any correspondence they have with the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. However, in uh, when they're corresponding with the Europeans, it's more important for them to assert things like um, that Ahmed al-Mansur is the emperor of Morocco. Mm-hmm. So he has this more um, sort of conventional European title in the sense of I rule over this territory. Actually, right now I rule over it. I'm not looking back to the to the past, my dynastic heritage. I'm talking about you know where my my reach extends. I think this brings up an interesting example because when we try to get into the categories, the internal categories, in terms for uh, things like empire, uh, it's often f- hard to find out. You know how how do these terms and notions get translated? So, uh, what was what was the um, what was the Arabic word that ended up getting translated as emperor uh, into emperor? Right. So this. So yeah, exactly. The what is what are the ideals of sovereignty, and then how are they expressed in these two different kinds of chanceries? So, for example, you know, there's, uh, we have one example. This is from 1602, uh, and it's actually. You know, I just have the the English translation of the Spanish translation. This gets very complicated. Uh, in Morocco, the letter is sent to Elizabeth in an Arabic version and a Spanish translation. Once it gets to the English chancery, they then translate that into English. Uh, so the original Arabic says the letter comes out from al-Maqam, al-Ali, al-Mawlay, al-Imami, al-Sultani, al-Ahmadi, al-Mansuri, al-Hassani. And that then is rendered into Moulay Hamet. Uh, Emperor of Morocco, King of Fes, Sus, and Setwa. So you can see there in the Arabic. So the word for yeah. Go ahead. There's, so there's not a word for emperor. In fact, it is. It comes from the court. You know, this high court with all of these um, nisba adjectives that are associated with his other with his ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could translate them literally, but these are meant to invoke his anse- the titles of his ancestors, uh, and then that's rendered in into Emperor of uh, Fes, uh, Fez, Emperor of Fez. Um, sus and Sota. and then there's I mean there's another version of this that's in Spanish it's not the same it's unfortunately not the same letter but it's pretty clear that it's the same formula So thank you, Claire, for giving us this wonderful uh, look into 16th century translation between empires. I think we've really gained some insights into how precisely you know, political power and uh, diplomacy is conducted uh, in the Western Mediterranean in the early modern period between the Saudi uh, Moroccan dynasty and Habsburg Spain. And I think you've really shown us the possibilities for studying translation and interpretation, uh, both in terms of, let's say, understanding different conceptions of empire and uh, understanding the very ambiguous and uh, fraught role of the of the translators and the translations uh, that shuttle between these two places. So thank you again, Claire, for coming on the show. Thank you, Nir. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. For those of you that would like to know more, please go to the Ottoman History Podcast's uh, website, And there you can find a bibliography that Claire has provided for us. Once again, thank you, and tune in again soon. Thank you.